If you would, please open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4. Um, by the way, it's just a, a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, the book of Hebrews is officially anonymous. It's not known precisely who wrote it, but I'm going to go ahead and speak as if it's Paul, because I do think it's Paul. I think one way or the other, maybe it was a sermon he preached, maybe it was some stuff he said out loud and someone wrote it down. Um, whatever way, I think it's Paul. I think it's Paul who wrote it. The early church included it in the Bible originally because I thought it was Paul. As you can notice in your Bible, it's with all the other books by Paul. So I'm going to say it's Paul. I could be wrong. Now, this isn't dogma, um, but it's what I'm going to do. Okay. Hebrews 12, then, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are weak and desperate, and we grow weary and faint-hearted in our Christian life. And your word, though, gives life to us. It encourages us. It reminds us of the reason that we run, and I pray that you would do that for us now. Please speak to us through your word. Encourage the faint-hearted. Spur on those who are already zealous for you. Please bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the band Switchfoot. Now, they were popular in the early 2000s, but they've been my favorite band since high school. Uh, and particularly, it's the lead singer, John Foreman. I've liked pretty much any song he's ever written. Uh, he has some different bands, and there was one point in my life where I think I had listened to literally every song that I could possibly listen to by him. Uh, one time, my friend and I, we went and followed him at various concerts from 12 midnight to 6 in the morning down in San Diego. He did this crazy thing of 25 concerts in 24 hours. Those were the only ones we could make, so we spent the dead of night with him. And uh, above all that, though, you know, he's meant a lot to me because his songs have been so encouraging to me. All throughout my Christian life, they've in so many different ways encouraged me to love the Lord and, uh, and have helped me. Uh, it's because of that I was very grieved this past week when I learned of something that happened a couple weeks ago. Um, apparently there's some lesbian Christian artist that's named Similar. She's the first lesbian Christian artist to ever have any songs actually popular within the, the Christian audience, so that's telling in and of itself. But she had, in one way or the other, communicated publicly to John Foreman to ask him what his stance is on LGBTQ people. She said, I'm a big fan, and we all want to know, do you support us? And uh, John Foreman released a, a TikTok where he said, uh, yes, I support your rights and freedoms. I want you to feel loved and supported. Love and embrace have always been central to our story and our song. We need our differences. Uh, and then later, uh, this artist, she, she said, okay, that was very nice, but you know, it seemed a little bit wishy-washy. Are you really in, in our favor? And so she went to a concert, and I guess while she was there, she was very annoying, and she kept yelling gay rights. But um, later then, John Foreman then released another video where he said, I'm so glad you were there last night. In fact, it breaks my heart to think that you would not be accepted. No one else is an expert on someone else's experience. Now, of course, this isn't a straight-up denial of the faith. I'm not saying that John Foreman went apostate. 
Who knows, I would actually bet money that still in his heart of hearts, he believes that homosexuality is a sin, and he was just trying to say the thing that will put him right in the middle and will get nobody mad at him. But if that is the case, well, it doesn't really matter. If he either doesn't care what Scripture says about the sin, or if he does, he's comprom- he has compromised when he has been tested publicly. If, he does, if that's his conviction that people who practice that are going to go to hell and they must repent, but he doesn't say it, he's proved himself a coward. And, and I, I bring this up, this example specifically, not because it's the worst, but it does demonstrate the, the point where we are going to face the pressure in the years to come. Listen, if there's a reason that you are going to lose your job in the coming, in the coming years, uh, that you're going to have difficulties functioning in society, the reason that Christian colleges might be closed is because of this issue. This is where the battle rages. All right, And in some other cultures in the past, it might have been offensive to say that God loves everybody. That's not offensive to say that. So it's good. You should say that God does love everybody, but it doesn't take any courage to say that because everybody expects it. What takes courage is to say that homosexuality is a sin. Not that it's an unredeemable sin, but that it is. And it doesn't matter if you say everything else right. If you, don't, if you uh, succumb and compromise where the battle is raging, you've proven yourself a coward. That's the point where you were going to demonstrate that you care more about Christ than anything else. And he crumbled. And this is just, it seems to me, representative of something that's been happening about the past two or three years. It seems it's just a, a, cons, a constant onslaught of people either compromising, falling in scandal, or just walking away from the faith completely. Uh, famous Christians, but also a lot more poignantly, those who are close to us. People who we thought were our fellow brothers and sisters who encouraged us in our faith, and yet they either compromise on some issue or they say, I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. And all of these examples of people failing to finish the race, they are exactly what Paul is, is writing to us to avoid here in Hebrews 12, 1-4. His emphasis is on endurance. That is the point. We need to run this race with endurance. That's what he says in verse run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then again in verse 2, it's Jesus who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. That is what the Christian life is about. It is not a sprint, it's a marathon. The quality that you need above all is not a great run out of the gates. The quality that you need is endurance. Because it does not matter if you lived a very faithful life for 20 years and you did great ministry, if you are not confessing Christ at the end of your life, you failed. It does not matter anything else that happened. And it it is absolutely true that the Lord will keep those who saves. The perseverance of the saints is a very clear teaching in the Bible. But nevertheless, anybody who ceases to repent of their sins and believe in Christ will demonstrate themselves to have not been a Christian. All these people that fall away, they didn't know that they were fake Christians. They thought that their faith was genuine just as you do. They went to church and were eager to hear the Bible just as you do. They were eager to serve others just as you do. And nevertheless, they did not endure. And it isn't discouraging to look at all these examples because it's an existential question. How do I know that's not going to be me? What guarantee is there that it's not going to be me? Well, we need endurance. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 1-4. As Paul calls us 
to three practices that will lead to our endurance. All throughout the book of Hebrews, Paul has been calling his audience to perseverance, to endurance. There are many warning passages where he says, make sure you do not fall away. Since you have the salvation, uh, be diligent to make sure you do not lose it. You must persevere. You must endure. And this has been Paul's thought all the way back in, verse, uh, in chapter 10. Look there at chapter 10, verse 36. You guys are probably familiar with chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. It's this great list of all the saints from the Old Testament and how they served the Lord through suffering they endured by faith. And the reason that Paul even brings up uh, these saints in this hall of faith is because in verse 36, see what he says. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Paul is he's telling them, you guys need endurance. And then it's from that thought that he says, and in order to endure, you need faith. In order to press on in this life, you need to have a strong conviction, a hope that there's a reward waiting for you in heaven. So you have to have faith to endure. And then it's from that, then he, let me tell you all about faith. And he gives all these examples of faith. And so he started with endurance, he went through faith, and now chapter 12, verse 1, he's come back to endurance. Considering all these saints who have gone before us and lived faithfully, no matter the cost, Paul says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The first point, the first practice that you need to implement in your life in order to endure is to remind yourself of your predecessors. Remind yourself of your predecessors. I can be prone to be discouraged when I look at all these people who fall away, and it seems like, man, it seems like everybody's got some hidden sin that it's just a matter of time before it's found out. Everybody's a hypocrite. And I can get discouraged. But I have the wrong perspective when I'm thinking about that. The, the, the scandals, uh, the, the apostates, they, they are violent and loud and they grab our attention. The quiet acts of kindness and faithfulness that happen thousands of times every day by Christians all around the world, that is unnoticed. It's quiet. It's silent. The newspapers write a headline when it's pastor has affair. They don't write a headline when it says pastor celebrates 30th wedding anniversary. It's the sins that, that draw our attention. But what Paul's saying is, look at all the people, though, who have lived faithfully. He, he gives this, uh, this image here of, uh, of a person in a race. Imagine in a Roman Colosseum. He says, run the race. You're, you're a contestant there. And he says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, a great host of people all around you. He says, all those saints who came before you and lived by faith, they're the spectators in the stands now watching you. And, and Paul has been using all throughout uh, chapter 11, he's been saying that these people have been uh, commended. Basically, they've been witnessed to. They had been seen by others and commended as faithful. And he says, these people who were seen and commended as faithful, they are now witnesses. They were witnessed to about their faith. And now they look at you, eager to commend you and witness you as you live faithfully. And that's an encouragement to us. As we're living this life, we are surrounded, we are being watched by all these people who have proved that the Christian life is not impossible, that through the power of the Spirit, you can endure, you can be faithful. You are not destined to some great sin that's going to ruin your life and your family and finally lose salvation. No, yes, 
the Christian life is a great challenge, but it's not a unique one. You're not Frodo, the one person in the world who has to carry this burden. No, you're not unique. The, the, the trials that you face, the burdens that you bear, have been borne by faithful people for thousands of years now. Millions of times over. And being there in that stadium with everybody watching you, it rids you of your excuses. You can't say, well, I, I just face too many temptations to go on. Because all you need to do is look up at the section in the stands who face far greater temptations than you, and yet persevered. You say, okay, maybe I can bear with these then. You say, I, I, I received too much persecution. Well, then you look at all those who, who were killed, who were martyred, and you say, okay, I don't face that much. You think, I, I suffer too much. The Lord has taken too much away from me. And you look at the section of all those people who lost more than you would ever know. And yet they endured. It takes away our excuses. There is no problem that you face, no discouragement that would slow you down in your race that not thousands of other saints have already faced and already conquered through the power of the Spirit. And so through your discouragement, every time you hear of one Christian walking away from the faith, remind yourself of, of hundreds of others who haven't walked away from the faith. And it, what's interesting is, you know, this great cloud of witnesses, Paul has told us precisely who they are. They're all these saints of the Old Testament. And yet, the, the funny thing as you read through Hebrews 11 is that these are not perfect people by any means. I mean, goodness, Samson is included in here. He did like one good thing his whole life, and yet he makes the hall of faith. If the only people that you're going to be encouraged by are perfect people, then sure, you'll be discouraged all the time. But Paul isn't saying only be encouraged by perfect people. He's saying every single person who sacrifices for Christ, who lives for him, is a miracle. That's a person who was dead in their sin, who hated God, and yet God changed them. Even the smallest true good deed that they've done from a true faith is a work of God. And you ought to see that and be encouraged by that. Uh, this room has no, imperf- has no perfect people in it, but it is full of people who are demonstrations of God's changing work in their lives. And you ought to look around at these people and say, wow, yes, God is active. He, he is working still in this day. He changes people's lives. He encourages people in their suffering. He helps people conquer their temptations. So remind yourself of your predecessors. And remind yourself also of those who are running with you. This leads us then to the, the second practice that will lead to our endurance. And it's found there also in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Uh, the, the, the second practice is to be ruthless in the elimination of the unhelpful. Be ruthless in the elimination of the unhelpful. The picture that Paul gives here, it's an obvious one. He's saying that when a runner runs the race, he wears as little clothing as he possibly can. All right, When you watch uh, an Olympic race on the TV, nobody's ever wearing a suit. They're not wearing a cowboy hat. They're not wearing their nicest shoes. They're wearing the lightest things they possibly can that will allow them to run as fast as they can. And that's what Paul is saying. As we run this race towards Christ... There's no room for superfluous, unnecessary things. Anything that isn't helpful to you, that's weighing you down, you need to cast it off. Um, I, I think of uh, 
of, of NASCAR drivers. Now, I'm not a fan of NASCAR, so don't judge me, but I do know that NASCAR drivers um, in their cockpit, that's the, the area they sit. Again, I'm not a fan. I just happen to know it. It gets up to 130 or 40 degrees in the cockpit, uh, which convinces me that it's truly hell on earth to be a NASCAR driver. Three hours only turning left and 130 degrees while you're driving at speeds that could kill you if you make a wrong turn. And the reason it's so hot in there is because they don't have AC. And now why don't they have AC in their race cars? Is it because they can't afford it? No. It's not even that there's a rule that says you can't have AC. You have to be miserable. No, the reason you don't have AC in your race car is because it's unnecessary. It's going to take extra power from the engine. It's going to be extra weight. You don't need it. There is one goal for the race car driver, and that is to run to drive as fast as they can for the however many laps they have to do. And they look at their car and they examine every part of their car, asking that question, is this going to help me do that? And if it doesn't, in the case of the AC, well, then you get rid of it. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's all right. It's not going to slow me down. So I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. And that's the same thing that we are to do for our lives. We have one goal in life. Uh, that is to know God and to make Him known. To know God and to make Him known. And we need to be ruthless like athletes are when they have their one goal. All that matters is that as I win the race, and so therefore I'm not going to try and wear my favorite jacket. I'm not going to put whatever on. All that matters is that I finish the race, that I run as fast as I can. And so you need to look at your life and you need to ask yourself, not just is this thing a sin, but is this thing helping me know Christ more and to make Him known more? If it's not, then get rid of it. It'll probably be painful. It's probably something you like. That's the reason you do it. But it doesn't matter. The race car drivers would also really like AC. But they get rid of it. And the reason this is especially important, again, is the perspective that we're running a marathon, not a sprint. There are many things that are okay over a short distance that are not okay over a long distance. Um, I, I definitely, and I'm sure you guys can relate, have shoes that I'll only wear if I'm not going to be doing a lot of walking that day. If I'm just going to be sitting at my desk mostly, there are certain shoes I can wear. If I'm going to be walking all around campus all day, I'm not going to wear certain shoes. Why? Because I'm going to get blisters. Every time I take a step, yeah, it rubs against my skin a little bit. But if I'm only taking a minimal amount of steps, it's it's not irritating at all. But if if I walk miles and miles and miles, what is a slight irritation at first, it slowly erodes my skin until eventually it's bare. And if you walk far enough with shoes that do not fit right, eventually the blister is going to be so bad it's going to be painful to take one step at all. And that's the same thing. There are many things in your life which might be sin or not sin and aren't a big deal when you just do it once, right? I wasted one hour. It's not a big deal. I had, I had one angry thought. I had one lustful thought. I had one thought of pride. What's the big deal? And again, on a sprint, it doesn't matter. One time, yeah, it's, it's relatively insignificant. But years are made of, of just days, of just moments. It's okay in the short term, but it, because it's a, a long race, those little things, they add up. The blister gets greater and greater. You guys all know this. Nobody has ever gone apostate. No pastor has ever disqualified himself from ministry because he was just doing great in his Christian life, going up and up and up, and then it was just a cliff. It might have looked like that in public, but you can know for a certainty 
that for years in his private life, he was tolerating certain things that weren't a big deal. And they just got bigger and bigger and bigger, so big till eventually he couldn't conceal it anymore. Uh, you, you might have heard this, uh, this saying before. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That's why we have to be ruthless in getting rid of any weight. The, the AC might take a, a second off of one lap, but over hundreds of laps, that adds up. It's the same with your life. You think, ah, it's not a big deal. Sure, it doesn't help me know Christ more, but it doesn't harm really anybody. Yeah, not right now, but it's going to build a habit that's going to build your character, and that's what's going to determine your life. How you make your, your small decisions. But as we think about this, it would be wrong if you took the conclusion, okay, I need to get rid of everything that is unhelpful. That means from now on, I'm not going to have any thought other than prayer. I'm never going to read another word that's not the Bible. I'm never going to talk about anything ever again with anybody other than the gospel. That would be a wrong understanding of what Paul is saying. And and so let me give you a a few things to, to think about as you look at your life ruthlessly thinking, okay, what here is slowing me down in my run for Christ? What can I get rid of? These are some things you should think about. Uh, the first thing is to remember that God created all things good. Uh, the Bible has passages where it tells you to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Uh, one of them for you to look at later would be Ecclesiastes 9, 7-10. It tells you that everything that you've, every good gift you've been given by God is something you should enjoy. Another passage is, is 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. And I do want to turn there briefly. I think it would be good if we just saw this. Uh, because Paul here in, in 1 Timothy is directly addressing people who would say that. Get rid of everything that isn't directly you know, Christian stuff. Only church, only Bible reading, only prayer. You can't do anything else. So starting in verse 1, 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Pretty much everything in life, what's created by God, and anything that isn't sin could somehow conceivably be seen as a way that God could reveal himself to you or allow you to serve others. Pretty much everything. God created these things as good gifts. And so something like marriage, God created it so you can know him through it. You know his love through the love that you have for your spouse. So that, that's the first thing, is, is don't be naive thinking only a very limited thing, amount of things help me know God or help me make him known. No, all kinds of things do. And so in a way, you could justify almost anything as not being a weight, but as something that's helpful. And because of that, a, a second thing is to not ask yourself with whatever particular activity is, don't ask yourself, could this be helpful? Could this somehow conceivably help me know Christ more? But does it actually do that? Practically, in my life, not for anybody else, but for me, does it actually help me grow in Christ? And if it doesn't, well, you have two options. If, it's, if your marriage is not letting you know Christ more and make Him known more, the solution, of course, isn't to get divorced. It's to change your marriage so that it is something that glorifies God and lets you see Him more. 
But there are other things where maybe after time you just need to reach the conclusion that you can't handle something. For example, um, I can think of all kinds of ways that social media could be a great thing that can let you know God more and help you, uh, and help you reveal him to others. You know, you can look online and see other people post encouraging things. You can get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ better. You can share encouraging things and encourage them in their walk. And so maybe you had that thought, and that's why you started off on social media to begin with. But then over time, you realize, oh, this actually doesn't make me more like Christ. It actually makes me bitter and discontent, and it wastes a lot of my time. And then, then maybe you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to rededicate myself in this area to honor Christ. When I use social media, I'm going to make sure I use it for good purposes. I'm going to continue to rejoice in the Lord when I look at the good things other people have. But then after years, if you keep trying to do that, you just never can. At some point, it might be appropriate to just say, listen, I can't handle social media. Other people may use it and grow, and that's great, but I just don't have the strength to do it. And you have the humility to recognize that you just can't handle it. That this, however it might be a blessing for others, it's just a wait for me. And so I need to get rid of it. But at the same time, I can't make that decision for you. This is the last thing to think about as you examine your life about what to eliminate is that every person has to make the decision for themselves what's helpful. You can't tell somebody else, this isn't helpful for you. This is an unnecessary wait for you. They have to decide for themselves. You might have decided that social media does not help you know Christ. It weighs you down. But that does not give you the right to go and tell other people that you're in sin if you're on social media. If somebody is truly in sin, yes, tell them. And it's certainly not wrong to try and help your brother or sister think about something, to think if it really helps them know Christ. But you can't make the call for them. Think about how angry my wife would be if every time we left for a trip, I went in her suitcase and rifled through everything going, you don't need this, you don't need that, what is this for? No. (laughs) She would hate that because, well, first of all, I I don't know what half of the things do in there. Uh, It's not my place to decide for her what things she needs. No, instead I need to have the trust that she can make that decision for herself. That's the same thing. You can't make the call for everybody else. You don't need that in your life. You need to trust them and, again, help them think biblically, encourage them, but you can't make the call. Okay, so that that was the second practice that leads to our endurance, to be ruthless in the elimination of the unhelpful. Now, the rest of our passage from from the end of verse 1 to verse 4 is all one point. And because this is Paul's main point. He, he dedicates a clause to reminding yourself of your predecessors. He, he gives you a, a phrase to think about being ruthless in the elimination of the unhelpful. Everything else is about the main thing that you need to do to endure in life. And that is this. Stare at Jesus. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, That word there, to look, it's a dramatic word. It does have the connotation of stare, of not being diverted or distracted by anything else, but all my attention is on Christ. That is how you endure in the Christian life, is you make the life about Christ. If it's about anything else, you're eventually going to fail. Because He is everything to our faith. Absolutely everything. And I'm going to give you three sub-points here to this one main point of staring at Jesus. And the first one is to define your faith by him. And this is what Paul means when he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Paul has just gone all throughout Hebrews 11 and he gave all these examples of people who lived by faith. 
But now he comes to the preeminent one, not one who lived by faith. He doesn't say that Jesus also lived by faith. No, he's one who is the object of our faith. Everybody has been looking to him all along. He is the the founder, the originator, the pioneer of faith. It's through his death and his high priestly role that you're even able to have faith. That there is a race that you can run that ends in eternal glory. It's because Christ made that path. He made the race. He started it. He showed you how to do it. And he gives you everything you need along the way. He's the one who is going to perfect that faith in you. And by Paul saying this, he he says it's from the beginning to the end, it's Christ. And Jesus, yes, you cannot overstate it. He is truly everything when it comes to our faith. If you are ever discouraged in your faith, the solution is to look at Jesus more. I'm sure you all know the strategy of how to stand on one foot, right? What do you do? If you you want to remain balanced, what do you do? You look at one point. You find it. If you're looking all over the place, you're going to fall over. That's the same thing. We do not get distracted by all these different things in life. We put our sole focus on Christ, and that allows us to keep running. Listen, whatever problem you're facing that discourages you, that makes it difficult for you to run, the solution is that you need to look at Christ. If you're running and you're thinking, what's even the point of I'm doing this, that I deny myself all the time, that I give up all these things I want, what do you do? You look at Christ and you say, oh yeah, that's the reason I do this. It's because I love Him. It's because knowing Him is better than anything else. That's why I do this. Uh, you ask yourself, is this thing even real? How do I know that this Christianity thing is true? What do you do? You look at Christ and you say, oh yes, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else I could go. Oh, when you are discouraged, you feel like you are weighed down too much by all the burdens and sufferings you face. You look at Christ and you see, it's all worth it. No cost is too much to know my Lord who gave everything for me. Indeed, for the sake of Christ, I have counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We need to define our lives, our Christian lives, completely by our dedication to Christ. He is the reason that we run. He's the reason we're able to run. Everything is about Him. Our faith is completely defined by Him. Second sub-point here is found in the rest of, uh, of verse 2. Consider His example. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the one time in the whole New Testament that it says that Christ endured the cross. And Paul says it now because he's trying to make the connection with your own endurance. We do look to Christ as the preeminent example of how to persevere through suffering. And notice the reason that he persevered. It's because of the joy that was set before him. It was a positive motivation. It was, to be crude, it was the carrot. It was the joy that would come from being obedient to his father and from bringing many sons to glory. That's what made him able to tolerate everything else. And not just to tolerate it, it says here that he despised the shame. That means that the shame that came from the cross, it meant nothing to him. He disregarded it. He ignored it. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of the joy that was set before him. And that's the same in your life. Uh, There is a place in life for negative motivation, for obeying out of duty. Sometimes 
That's all we can do. I'm sure for many of us, that's maybe the, the first catalyst by which we became a Christian is, wow, I am going to hell. Or, wow, I am miserable in life. I need somebody to save me. And these negative motivations, they have their place. There are many of them in Scripture, especially when we're lethargic. Nothing wakes us up like seeing somebody else who's fallen away. Wow, I need to really get my life in order. But negative motivations don't really work over the long term. This is the way with your kids, right? You could get your kids to do anything one time if you were severe enough. You scream at your kid, you tell them they're never going to eat again, they'll clean up their room. That's not an effective strategy over the long term, is it though? They live their whole life in fear. The only reason they ever please you is because they're afraid that you're going to do something nuts to them. There's a place for the negative motivation. But if your goal is to run the long race, to endure, then you need to be fueled primarily by a positive uh, motivation, by joy that is set before you. you know, life is not about minimizing pain. It's about maximizing joy. It's not about minimizing pain, trying to just at any point thinking what's going to be more painful. And then at one point you get to hell or suffer as a Christian and live that boring life. Okay, I guess I'll do that. It's better than hell. That's not how you ought to live your life. It ought to be driven by how do I get the maximum joy? And there's only one answer to that. It's not up to everybody to decide what's going to bring me the most joy. No, the answer for everybody is knowing Jesus Christ. That is how you have maximum joy. That's how you have infinite, eternal joy. That's why you were created. And it is such a great joy that it makes everything else seem as nothing. When you are running towards that positive thing, all the suffering that you endure, it will seem but a little thing. You will despise it. it will, you will ignore it, disregard it. Why? Because it is such a small cost to pay for the eternal joy of knowing Christ and reigning with Him. That's what Paul says, right? This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Or maybe you know uh, Mark chapter 10, when Peter tries to impress Jesus, and he says to him, Lord, look, I've left everything for you. Isn't that impressive? And Jesus says to him, there's nobody who's left father or mother or brother or sister or lands or possessions that won't receive a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. Nobody in heaven is going to think that they made this great sacrifice in life. No, they're going to look at the reward they have and they're going to think, you know, all that stuff I suffered, yes, it was very painful at the time, but it's nothing compared to the joy that's now here. And that's what's going to let you endure. It's because the pain that could possibly ever come to you in life could never match the joy that is awaiting for you when you finish the race. And so consider the example of Christ. Consider how he was motivated by the joy that was set before him. And you do the same. And note, of course, that now Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has received his reward. And very soon, if you finish the race, you likewise will receive your reward. Though you might be hated and miserable in this world, you will reign with Christ in the world to come. You are a co-heir with him if indeed you fight the good fight and finish the race. That is what awaits us. Uh, the, the last sub-point here is to consider your suffering with His. I'm oh, sorry, not consider. Compare your suffering with His. Compare your suffering with His. Look at verse 3. I know it says the word consider, um, but I, I think actually the, the better word here is compare. Uh, the Greek word is one that will sound familiar. 
analogia. It's where we get our word analogy. Paul says, uh, compare your life, your sufferings, with him who endured such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, a, a way to be a terrible boss is to require more of your employees than you are willing to do yourself. Tell them all the time that they need to be absolutely punctual to every meeting, but then you yourself show up 15 minutes late to everything. You're going to get everybody very angry with you. You're a parent and you tell your kids all the time, you always need to tell the truth. It's of the utmost importance that you're honest. And then you lie right in front of their face. Nothing's going to get people more disgruntled and angry faster than requiring of them more than you do yourself. On the other hand, of course, if you do way more than you require of your employees, you're not even going to need to tell them to work harder. They're just going to want to emulate you, follow you, because you're such a great example. Listen, God does in your suffering, no matter what you face, there's nothing that he requires of you that he himself has not done. There's no suffering that you have gone through that is greater than what Christ himself suffered. And there's no injustice that you've faced that is worse than the Son of God, the perfect one, being killed for our sins. It has a, that is the solution to being bitter and disgruntled about your sufferings and being discouraged by them. As you look at Christ and his sufferings, it has a wonderful effect on you. It turns that bitterness, that discouragement, it turns it into gratitude. You think, wow, my life is really hard. This is very difficult. But then you look and you see how Christ suffered so much more than you could ever know. And he who did nothing wrong, you in a way are somewhat to blame for your sufferings, but he not at all. And he did it for me. I'm not suffering on anybody else's sake, but he did not need to suffer, and yet he chose to for me. And so because of that, if he wants me to suffer for his sake, well, I'd be happy to do that. He, he gave me everything, and he paid the ultimate price. Of course I can suffer for Christ. If this is what he thinks is best, sure, I'll do it. I trust him completely. I trust him completely because he has done everything for me. No one can say to God, you require too much of me. You treat us too unfairly. He says, there's nothing that I've ever done to you that I did not do even more so to my son. And this reality that God is able to sympathize with us and our suffering and our sin is not something that has been always true. Uh, it is a fact about God's character that he cannot suffer. Now, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. That means that in God's emotions, he is not fluctuating like we do. He's not at one moment angry and another moment joyful. No, he is always 100% maximum joyful. And the only reason that we describe God with different emotions is because that's the only way we can perceive him. It's just like we say of the sun that it rose and it set. Of course, the sun has stayed stationary. It's us that has been moving. It's the same thing we say of God, that he's angry or he's pleased right now. It's not him who's fluctuating in his emotions. It's us who are changing from his goodwill to his pleasure. And so it looks different from our perspective. God, as he is in and of himself, he cannot suffer like us. He's eternally happy, and that's good news. Listen, if God suffered sometimes, that's not good news for you, because how could you think you would ever be able to have eternal joy if even God suffers? But he doesn't. But then he did. When he became a man, he took on a human nature that allowed him to suffer. And so for the first time in history, you can say that, yes, God actually does know my suffering. He knows my pain experientially. Everything that I've experienced, he's experienced even more. 
Uh, Paul, uh, you know, of course there are believers around the world that have uh, stood for Christ even to the point of being punished, of shedding their blood, of dying. But apparently Paul's audience hadn't experienced that. And, and neither have us. Well, whatever persecution we face, yeah, it might be painful. But we haven't even shed our blood yet. And then compare that to Christ. And it seems a small thing. I started the sermon with a, a story of a coward. Uh, let me conclude with another one. Uh, when King Henry VIII uh, decided that it would be convenient for uh, England to no longer be a Catholic country, but now to be a Protestant one, because that would allow him to get a divorce, uh, he himself was not very interested in matters of religion. And so when he was going to decide what is this new Church of England going to be like, what he did is he just took his top official, the archbishop, and he said, hey, you figure it out. I don't care what it is. You just decide what the Church of England is going to be like. And, uh, and God's providence, uh, this was a great blessing to England and indeed to the whole world because the person that King Henry VIII asked to determine what the Church of England was going to be like was a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. And in God's providence, it had been just recently that Thomas Cranmer had started reading the writings of Calvin and those other people in Geneva. And he had become thoroughly convinced of the truth of the Reformation, of the doctrine taught there in Geneva. And therefore, he uh, designed the Church of England to be thoroughly reformed. It was in the, the 19th century that Anglicanism became more of this Catholic thing. But when Thomas Cramner had his input, it was entirely reformed, entirely faithful to Scripture and sound doctrine. And Thomas Cramner's greatest gift to England and the world uh, is this book that you may have heard of called The Common Book of Prayer. Uh, England had poor theology, uh, not unified in sound doctrine. He wrote this book that would lead them in both personal prayer and public prayer. Uh, it laid out all the different uh, sections of Scripture to read throughout the day and would unify England around sound doctrine. And uh, those prayers are, are some of the most beautiful prayers written in the English language. I myself personally love them. Well, one day, though, Thomas Cramner's uh, time in the sun ended. King Henry VIII died, and he appointed his daughter, which uh, she didn't last long. Uh, and there came somebody named Bloody Mary, another daughter of King Henry VIII. And her primary goal, and now that she was the monarch, was to eliminate Protestantism from England, to replace it with Catholicism. And her number one plan in this mission or, was to take all of the prominent leaders to Protestantism, those who were responsible for the Protestant nature of the Church of England, and have them either recant or kill them. And so she found some of those uh, faithful brothers, and they were steadfast. And even at the point of death, they endured, professing the true faith. And they were killed for that. Among them were uh, Mortimer Ridley and Hugh Latimer. But Thomas Cramner, he was not steadfast like them. Uh, at first he was. At first they treated him very poorly and they took off all of his nice clothes and they gave him nothing, but he persevered. He endured. But then they changed their strategy and they said, hey, let's actually just give him a bunch of good stuff. And they gave him back everything he had, his nice house, his nice clothes, nice food. And they said, yeah, if you would just recant, actually we have some papers right here. If you would just sign these, yeah, we'd restore your former position. You'd have all this power and you could live a happy Life. And it was at this point that he succumbed. And he, he signed those pieces of paper, recanting everything that he had said before. Uh, as is often happens, though, when you sell your soul to the devil, you don't even 
uh, get the world thrown in. Mary decided that he, she was going to kill Thomas Cramner anyways. And so then in complete shame, uh, they, they distributed the documents that he had signed. Everybody knew he recanted. And they brought him out in Oxford Square, uh, completely uh, shameful. And they had him kneel down before everybody. And then the grand finale, the great stroke against Protestantism, was they were going to have their leader stand up and they, they were going to have Thomas publicly recant everything he taught. And when it was time for him to get up there, though, our coward found his courage. He said, first, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe every article of the faith, every word and sentence taught by our Savior Jesus Christ, his apostles and prophets in the Old and New Testament. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life. And that is, all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue, and forasmuch as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. They didn't let him go anymore. They took him and they threw him in the fire. I say this because our coward, he changed. He endured. No matter where, what you have done in the race thus far, you might feel like giving up completely in the race. You might have been weighed down with what it feels like chain mail for years. Weighed down by all types of sin and weight. And you've not been running for Christ and you're convicted. Well, the great news is you still have some race left. And you can endure in that part. It's not over. It's never too late to get up and start running again. And so let us all do that. None of us have run the race perfectly thus far. So then with whatever time left, let us run it fully with all the strength we can muster through God's Spirit looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the way we'll be able to endure. He's the reason we'll be able to run faithfully for the rest of our lives. Let us ask Him that He would help us in that endeavor. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your patience with us. We all fail in many ways. We have all been distracted. We have all hung on to things that have kept us from You. Please, Lord, In our remaining time, let us all endure. Let us fix our eyes on You, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And from that, let us receive the strength that allows us to carry on. Let us be faithful to You. Fill in us the hope that comes from knowing in just a short time we will have eternal, infinite joy and that we will know You forever and we will reign with You. Yes, Lord, please fill us with that faith, with that hope. And let that turn into love for our brothers and sisters who are likewise struggling in this race. In Jesus' name, amen.